You're free to sit down once you've shaken everyone's hand. So you still got to get Eric up there and the piano player as well. Yeah. Um, all right, this evening we're going to be in Genesis chapter 17, so let me invite you to turn your Bibles and follow along as we study through this chapter. Up to this point, God had promised that Abram would receive great descendants and that they would possess this special land. Abram in chapter 15 learns that his descendants are coming through his own body. Remember before that he thought, well, God promised all these descendants, but it must be coming through one of the servants of my house, Eleazar specifically, this one who was born in his house. But God said, no, this will actually come through your body, Abram. And at this time, Abram was well into his 80s, and uh, that was in chapter 15. Well, in chapter 16, Abram doesn't wait around for God to do anything. He forces the issue. In chapter 16, we find him uh, having a relationship with Hagar, the Egyptian maid of Sarai. And uh, so Abram receives a son through Hagar, and he thinks that this now is going to be the child of promise, that God's going to bless this child. And, uh, and his descendants, all these great promises will come through this descendant, Ishmael. In fact, at the end of chapter 16, the idea that Hagar bore Abram the son is mentioned three times in those few short verses. And I think it's repeated so often in order to show us that in chapter 17, this was not what God had in mind. This was not what God had in mind. We'll see this today. For all the scheming that they had done in chapter 16, and Sarai was complicit with this. In fact, she came up with the idea. Uh, Sarai and Abram did this scheming, but God had a better way. He had a better plan, a different plan, a more spectacular, miraculous plan. And that's going to be unveiled for them now further in chapter 17, something that they didn't understand before. And, and again, this goes back to what we've talked about before, and that is that God often unveils His plan for us one step at a time. He doesn't open up the vault and just give us everything. Pour it all out. Here you go. This is how everything is going to turn out in your life. He wants us to continue to trust Him so He doesn't give us all the details. And this is what He does with Abram and Sarai. Chapter 17. Let me begin uh, this evening just by reading the first eight verses. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." God begins here with Abram, going to be quickly changed here to Abraham, but He begins by reminding him of his promises, but He expects also that Abraham would respond in a certain way. We'll see that in the last part of the, the, book, in the, last part of the chapter, verses 15 to the end of the chapter, that, that Abraham has a responsibility. Even though God has given a one-sided covenant, this is what I will do for you. You don't have to do anything. Abraham, I will do it. I will get. I will bless your descendants. I will give them this land. In fact, you'll be dead when I follow through on this promise. He, he didn't know that at this time, but uh, but likely understood that. Uh, but still, Abraham and his descendants have a responsibility to obey in faith. So first, verses one through fourteen, we see that God reminds Abram of his promises, this everlasting covenant that they had, and He begins by showing him. Abraham, uh, soon to be Abraham, his expectations. Now at this time we see in verse 1 that Abram was 99 years old. So 
So that makes Ishmael about 13 years old. Uh, imagine what's going on here. Okay. Abram had already schemed with Sarai to, to have this relation with Hagar and have this son through this maid. And so for 13 years, Abram believes that this is going to be the son of promise. And yet God still has something to show him. I'm going to do something spectacular. We're going to see later. About this time next year, Sarai is going to have a son. And the response by by Abram is is quite astounding. Notice uh, God's uh, what God calls Himself there in verse one. He says, "I am God Almighty." In the middle of the verse, the word there is perhaps a familiar Hebrew name that you would recognize, and that is El Shaddai. God Almighty. El being God and Shaddai is the Almighty One. And so God here is going to to expect something out of Abraham. But before He does, He says that I am the perfect One. I am the, the powerful One. Before demanding perfection from Him, He shows Himself as the all-powerful One. As Dr. McCune says, only an omnipotent God can demand and bring about perfection, which is is what he's going to call for from Abraham. And we see that at the end of verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. What does that mean? Well, I think that's going to be explained for us as God starts to unveil what Abraham's responsibility is in verses 2 through 8. So we'll see this as we go through. But what God is calling him to, we could say more generally, obedience. Hey, this is what I'm doing for you. This is what I expect for you to do for me. And that is simply obedience. Walk before me and be blameless. As I look at you, I want to look at you like I look at Job, as a blameless man, a man who is mature in his faith, who is obedient. That's the idea there. Now, the nature of this covenant is is um, is something that we need to consider because notice verse 2 I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, in chapter 15, we saw that God was the one who made the one-sided covenant with Abraham. Remember? Abraham, Abram was responsible to cut the animals and lay them out, and then God, in the form of, of uh, smoke and fire, walks through the middle of the cut animals saying that I let, let what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't follow through on my covenant with you. Do you remember what Abraham was, or Abram at the time was doing while this was happening? What was he doing? He was fast asleep, right? He was in a deep sleep, the Scriptures say. So what does that mean? Okay, that, that tells us, and I said at the time, that that was a one-sided covenant that God was going to do the work. God was going to do... Uh, to be the one to follow through on all these things. So what's going on here? Because now it seems like God is now asking something of Abram. Does that mean that God will not follow through on his end of the bargain, in his end of the covenant, if Abram doesn't follow through on his, or if his descendants don't follow through on his? And because it's a one-sided covenant, the answer to that is no. No. Hey, this is the response. This is the required, uh, required maybe a little bit too strong. This is the expected response of Abram for God bringing this one-sided covenant to him. The only thing that was expected of Abram in chapter 15 was that he should know for certain that I am God and that I will follow through on this. That was the only thing expected of him. So now what he's saying is now I expect something of you. And all I would say, okay, this is not changing. We could say it's a modification, a partial modification of the covenant, but the main part of the covenant is still there. It's an everlasting covenant. God will bless His descendants. God will give His descendants the land. He will be their God and they will be His people. But now what what is coming up here in chapter 17 is that God is looking for an an expression of faith by Abraham. Okay? If you truly believe that I'm going to be the one that follows through on this, then I want to see that in your faith. And your faith is expressed how? In obedience. Walk before me and be blameless. So, 
It doesn't change God's role in the covenant. It simply um, earmarks it a little bit or, or, or tags a little bit onto it says, here's what your expectation is. It doesn't change what I'm going to do. Now, God was going to... Um, one of the ways that God would do this was by changing the name of Abram. He would remind Abram uh, throughout the generations, as long as he would live, he would remind him that God had this special covenant and had given it to him. And that's why you see in verse uh, 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And Abraham, you see there in the verse, means father of, or, or multitude, father of a multitude of nations. So what God is expecting here is that, that Abram would, would still trust in him. That he would still trust that, that he was going to follow through on this. And that he was going to show Abram in another way through this act of consecration, which we're going to read about, and that is the, the sign that he sets apart for, for these people, and that is circumcision. And isn't this very similar to our salvation? God does the work. God is solely responsible for our salvation. We can't take any of the credit. We can't boast in anything except for the cross. And not because we found it, but because God found us. Before we loved Him, He first loved us. Or as John writes in his epistle, we love Him because He first loved us. It doesn't happen the other way around. He's the one who chose us. He's the one who sought us. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who changes us. And Philippians 1.6 says He will finally complete us. He who started a good work in you will continue it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. To the point of maturity. To the point of, of the full metamorphosis as a glorified believer. But, okay, I hope you would agree with me on that first point. That is that God does the work in you in salvation. You can't take credit. But we cannot say that, that, that we can do nothing. Okay? God does the work in us, but we can just simply sit back and do nothing. When God does the work in us, it causes us, it, it, it allows us to respond in repentance and in faith, okay? which is expressed in obedience. Exactly. So, God, when He does a unilateral work in us, He never. He never expects us to sit back and do nothing. He always expects something out of us. It should be the heart's response of, of uh, recognizing what God has done. Notice Abram's initial response in verse 3. Back up to verse 3. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. Shows here who is serving whom. God doesn't fall on his face before Abram, does He? Say, I, I am serving you for, for being such a great father. No. We see that Abram is serving God. You see, God doesn't need Abram. God doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. We are not. The only reason He chooses to use us is for His own purposes, for His own glory, in order to get more praise for Himself. But if we uh, were not used by Him, then He could find other people. And yet, God, for some reason, does decide to use us as believers. But here, God reminds Abram of his promise. Probably, again, Abram might be thinking that this may not end up following... You know, God may not end up following through on this. So in verse 4, he says, As for me... So here's God saying, Here's my end of the covenant. I'm reminding you about what I've already told you. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, notice that first phrase in verse 4. As for me... Okay, God's saying, here's what you should expect of me. Now look down to verse uh, 9, because we're going to see this later. But God said further to Abraham, now as for you. Okay, so, so here's my responsibility in all of this. I'm going to follow through on my promises. You can count on that. But as for you, here's what I expect out of you. Now this is not going to change whether or not the covenant is fulfilled or not. It changes uh, whether or not he's going to show Abraham and his descendants are going to show whether or not they, they have faith in God. Um, and, um, and notice whose covenant this is. Throughout the passage, it's called my covenant. Verse 2, my covenant. Verse 4, 
My covenant. Verse 7. My covenant. Verse 9. Verse 10. 13. 14. 19. 21. God calls it My covenant. Okay, so again, he's probably going back to chapter 15 where he walks through the cut animals and says, This is what I'm going to do. Um, Now, not all covenants are that way. I hope you remember that from when we looked through that. Not all covenants are just simply one-sided like God does there. But many of them are conditional. um, uh, But this is not. So, God makes Abraham a father of nations. Before, his name was Abram, which meant exalted father. Probably refers to God the Father. The exalted father. But now it's changed to a father of a multitude of nations. And so, this would be a perpetual sign to Abraham to, to remind him about God's promise. So that every time someone would say his name, he would rem- be reminded of God's great promise. No longer was, were people calling him exalted father. They were calling him the father of multitude of nations. It would be like God appearing to you and promising that you would be the President of the United States one day. And in order for you to be reminded of that promise, He changes your name from whatever your name is to President. So that every time someone said your name, you would be reminded that God had promised for you to be the President of the United States. President, go pick up your clothes and put them away. Hey, That's a nice car that you have there, President. You would be reminded of God's faithfulness and His promise to do something great through you. And so God would remind Abraham through changing his name that he was going to to receive some great things. But that was not the only way he would remember. The second way is through this act of circumcision, this sign of circumcision. Verse 6, it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you. Uh, He gives further detail here. says, kings will come forth from you. This will be clearer during the life of David, when we see lots of kings come through the line of Abraham. Um, But notice in verses 7 and 8, God's ultimate purpose. What is God ultimately trying to do here? Is He trying to make a great person out of Abraham? Not necessarily. Verses 7 and 8 tell us. I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Then notice, the end of verse 8, and I will be their God. Throughout the Scriptures, God says, I will be their God and they will be My people. Speaking specifically of, of the Jews, but later on that expands in the New Testament to all believers. And in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, we have God actually dwelling among His people and saying those very words. I, will be their, I am their God and they are My people. And this is what God ultimately wants to do. He wants to live among those who bear His image. That's you. That's me. That's actually every unbeliever as well. He wants to live among... But there's a problem. Unbelievers can't live in God's presence, can they? And so God requires that that we come to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And on the basis of His finished work, we can live in God's presence. And so what you're going to find when we get to the end of Revelation is that that the city, the New Jerusalem, is made in the shape of a cube. And do you know what in the Old Testament was in the shape of a cube? The Holy of Holies. The place where God came down and lived with His people. The only place where people could actually be in the presence of God fully. In a special way, I should say. You understand God is everywhere, but His special presence. So now, in the new heavens, new earth is going to be made as one huge Holy of Holies. We're going to be able to be in God's presence for all of eternity. That's what God desires in His people. Now, these promises that God reminds Abraham about, okay, that I'm going to be God to them, I'm going to uh, make your descendants great, and I'm going to give you the land. You have to understand this is not every single descendant of Abraham, physical descendant, right? Not every Jew will receive the blessings from this covenant. Will they? Only, the New Testament makes clear, the spiritual descendants will share in this covenant. We'll talk about this later. We'll look at Romans chapter 4. 
All right, so here's the little extension that God puts on the covenant. Not that it doesn't change anything on his part, but he adds to it and says, this is now your the expectation I have for you, Abraham. And that's found in verses 9 through 14. Abraham, Abraham would be reminded of God's covenant uh, whenever someone would say his name. But God wasn't going to change every one of Abraham's descendants' names, right? So here's the way that they would be reminded of God's covenant, and that is through this sign of circumcision. Um, and I think there's a great deal of symbolism here. Uh, obviously, it's, it actually did take place. So there was actual circumcision going on within the Jewish people. But, but it, the symbolism here is that others will not necessarily know that I have made a covenant with you because it's hidden to them. But you will know, and you will often be reminded of God's faithfulness God's covenant with you. Notice verse 9 again. As for you, God says. Okay, this is now Abram's responsibility, Abraham's responsibility. Walk before me and be blameless. How do I do that? Verses 9 through 14 tell us. Verse 10, he tells that not only is your name changed, but now I'm going to require something of you. You need to have yourself and all males circumcised. Verse 10. Verse 9 says, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is brought who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The reason for the circumcision was so that it could be a sign. Verse 11 tells us that. The end of the verse says, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. A reminder. A sign. So that, that whenever this takes place, whenever this ceremony takes place, whenever this, this uh, takes place and you're reminded of these things, then you remember the covenant between me and you, or for his descendants, between God and Abraham. The time period of the covenant is that it would be ongoing. It wasn't just that Abraham needed to be circumcised himself and also all of his household. But God says, no, this is going to be an everlasting covenant. He says in verse 12, every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised, notice, throughout your generation. Generations. It doesn't stop with you and your family, Abraham. continues on. And you need to do this so that it will be a perpetual reminder to these people. Now, we need to understand that this is not, there's nothing magical about this. Okay? It doesn't magically place somebody in a right relationship with God, does it? Okay? But it, it should be a sign, of, particularly of the parents when they do it to their son, that they are concerned about God and His covenant and reminding their son about this covenant. And, uh, and the extent of the sign is that it would go beyond just Abram's own, Abraham's own family, his own household. Notice verse 12, the end of the verse again, says, A servant who is brought in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendants. They too are to be circumcised, aren't they? Why is that? Well, I think this proves that what God is doing here is not trying to create a pure race. He's not trying to say that this is the epitome of the, the, the pinnacle of the human race, this Jewish race. That's not what's happening here because he says every foreigner, even the ones that come into your house, are to do it. All kinds of people were going to be able to share in God's blessings, were they not? And the result or the, the response by God to those who, or by the people in verse 14, those who would not uh, take part in this act of consecration, they were to be cut off from God's people because they had broken His covenant. And uh, this was a problem. When the Gentiles were saved, 
in, in large numbers in the early church. You remember? The Jews were demanding that they be circumcised. That if you're going to be right with God, you have to be circumcised. But Paul argued that the point of circumcision is not to bring salvation. You need to understand that. It's not to bring salvation. It doesn't guarantee salvation. But it was simply an outward seal, outward sign for the Jews. And so therefore, it did not have to be forced on the Gentiles. That was something that, that the early church had to struggle their way through. But I think Paul came down, obviously, knowing that he's writing in the inspired Word of God, that he came down on the right side. So God reminds us of what He's going to do. He gives all these promises, reminders of, of what He's going to do. But here now He expects us as believers to obey Him in faith. Verses 15 to 27. In verses 15 to 22, we see God's plan of blessing for Sarah and Isaac. First, we'll look at Sarah. Then God said, then God said to Abraham, verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, and then I will bless her. and She shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90, uh, 90 years old, bear a child? And so God unveils. Here's the part where God unveils a little bit more of His plan. No, Hagar's son is not the one. That son came through your body, Abraham, yes. But that's not the one I had in mind. Instead, it's going to be through Sarah. God changes her name to show that she is actually going to be the ancestress of these great nations. That she's going to be the one who is the ancestor of all these great kings that will come down through her line, including the greatest king of all. And so her name is changed from Sarai, my princess, to Sarah, princess. And the reason I think God gives the change, again, is a reminder that she was be the mother of nations, verse 16. And so this is now new information that, that He reveals to them. I will bless her, verse 16, and indeed I will give you a son by her. What do you suppose Abraham would have thought if God never made that promise right there? How do you think Abraham thought God would have blessed him and his descendants? Through Ishmael, right? Ishmael, very capable young boy. But God says, no, that's not it. And, and Abraham's response is to laugh. Verse 17. It showed what Abraham thought about God's promise. There's two reasons that Abraham gives for why he didn't think this could happen. First, it's found in verse 17. Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? Okay, he knows that he's 99 years old at this point. By the time a baby comes, he would be a hundred years old. Will that possibly happen, God? And the second reason is also found in verse 17, and that is because Sarah was 89 years old at this time. And Abraham's thoughts here are further explained for us in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, when it says that Sarah's, Abraham believed that Sarah's womb was as good as dead. Not a great combination to have a child, right? A hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman with a womb that's as good as dead. And yet God said, no, that's exactly what's going to happen. And to further show this to him, he names him. Verses 18 through 22, and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, Abraham's concern is continued uh, unbelief here. He laughs and then he says, well, why can't Ishmael be the guy? Verse 19, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. God gives this child a name. Remember the name Ishmael meant God hears. Remember Hagar was, was traveling apparently back to Egypt. She's out in the wilderness. And God stops her. The angel of the Lord stops her and says, No, I, I, I know your trouble. 
Go back to Sarai and, and submit to her. I'm going to give you great blessings through your son, Ishmael. And uh, God named the son Ishmael because it means God hears or He hears. Look in the margin of your Bible in verse um, 18. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 19. Okay, In the margin of your Bible under verse 19, it should give you a definition for the name Isaac. Does it give it for you? He laughs. Isn't that interesting? Just as Abraham's name would be a reminder of God's continual perpetual covenant to him, so Isaac's name would also be a reminder to him and Sarah, which she also, we're going to find later on in a few weeks, that she also laughs, doesn't she, when she finds out that she's going to have a child. And so every time his name is spoken, they're, they're reminded of their we could say foolish response to God that they both laugh when He tells them. And God's saying here in these verses that my promise is not for Ishmael. It's true. I am going to bless Ishmael. He's going to have many descendants, as many as the sand on the seashore we saw before. And so He will be blessed, verse 20. But really, what I had planned, what my intention is, is for you, Abraham, to be blessed and your descendants to be blessed through Isaac, your coming son, the one that that will come within uh, at this season next year. And again, we see this continuing theme throughout the book of Genesis that God often chooses the younger versus the older. God often does that, doesn't He? When we, with our minds, would think that the line, the, the inheritance, the promise, the heir, the the blessings would all come through the oldest son. We are continually reminded throughout the book of Genesis and then further even onto the Scriptures with David being this young, ruddy little boy and his older brother not being cho- chosen. Uh, you have all sorts of examples. Shem was chosen over Japheth. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Joseph was cho- chosen over Reuben. That God chooses whom He pleases. He doesn't have to follow human convention. And this is the same thing that happens here. Ishmael should have been the guy. Ishmael should have been the one. And he will be blessed, but not nearly in the way that Isaac will be and his, uh, and the, his descendants. So notice Abraham's immediate response in verses 23-27. through 27. This gives you a window into Abraham's heart because he immediately obeyed. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in the house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. We could summarize that whole thing in one short little sentence. Abraham, Ishmael, and all of his house were circumcised in the same day. But God takes instead a whole paragraph, verses 23 to 27, to explain and repeat it. Why? He wants to highlight the significance of this event. That God is make that, that Abraham is making a great step of faith here. I believe he, he faltered a little bit when he laughed at God's promise about this son. But here he takes a step of faith and saying, you know what? It's not just enough for me to follow through that. I'm going to explain this to all the males. And anyone over eight days old, I'm going to make sure that they are circumcised. And that's in fact what happens. I'll turn to uh, Romans chapter 4, and we'll finish here. Romans chapter 4. Because what is going on here, I think in Genesis 17, and we need to, to relate this to our own Christian lives, is that there is a specific order here that we cannot mix up or will be condemned, uh, condemnable. And that is that faith precedes obedience. Faith precedes obedience. Faith comes first and then obedience. 
And if we don't understand this, it's going to shape the way that we live. All right, And Paul explains this for us in Romans chapter 4. He actually is speaking about the very same event that we are looking at. So I'm going to read um, large portions of this passage and then quickly explain them for you. But we'll begin in verse 1. Because in this chapter, Paul's talking about the relationship between faith and works, or faith and obedience. And we need to understand the order of them and how they relate to each other in order to, to understand our own uh, faith-filled lives. Verses 1 through 10. Here, Abraham is asking, answering the question, how is a, or Paul is answering, how is Abraham justified? How was he justified? That's what you should see in verses 1 through 10. What then shall we say? That Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But... To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And he gives the answer. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Okay, a lot of language there. But what you need to understand is Paul's trying to answer the question, how was Abraham justified? Was it by his work? Was it by him taking part in this sign, the seal of circumcision? And the answer is no. And the reason Paul knows that for a fact is because of verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What was the basis of Abraham's salvation, his justification, his right standing before God, according to verse 3? It was his faith. And And then Paul goes on to explain, when did this happen? When did God say... Your faith has been credited to you as righteousness. Look in the margin of your Bible under verse 3, and it'll tell you, it'll point you back to a verse in Genesis. Which verse is it? What is it? 15, 6. Where are we when we're studying tonight? Chapter 17, right? So, chronologically, before this act of service, uh, this act of consecration, God already credits the faith to him as righteousness. So that's why he says at the end, he's like, so when did, when did Abraham receive his, his justification, his right standing before God? While circumcised or uncircumcised? And the answer is, chapter 15, verse 6, while he was uncircumcised. So here's the danger. We can't mix those two up. We can't mix up faith and works. If we think, if we switch them around here, and we think that works are responsible for our faith. In other words, God is going to accept us on the basis of what we do. It doesn't work. We have to come to God on the basis of faith, and that's how He will accept us. The beauty of this order is seen in verse 16 and following. That circumcision is actually a sign or a response to a, a, a expression, an expression of our faith. Verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, that is Abraham, so that he might become a father of many nations according to to that which had been spoken, spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb as well. 
Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Circumcision here is a sign, a work, a response of obedience to a heart that's already been changed, that has already given itself in faith. So to be clear here, circumcision or any other work never brings about a right standing before God. In other words, it doesn't cause justification. It doesn't cause God to accept us. No works do that. Otherwise, verse 16 and 17, Abraham could not be the father of nations. Instead, when we keep these in order, that our faith is credited to us as righteousness, the response will be the same as what it was with Abraham. It will be works. It will be, for him, circumcision. It will be an expression of our faith, the obedience that God requires, that God expects. And the application for us as believers today is found in verses 23 and 24. Now, not for His sake only was it written, verse 24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So for Abraham, he didn't know anything about Jesus. right? He knew that there was a Redeemer coming, but that was it. He didn't know his name. He didn't know a whole lot about him, but we do. And so Paul says, for us, the faith that God requires, the faith that that that, that um, leads to God doing this work in us, is the faith in Jesus Christ specifically, specifically what He did for us. That is the gospel. And the reason that God can do this is because of the work of Jesus Christ. You see, there's no way that we could take our works over here, pile them up, and show them to God and say, God, you now have to accept me. There's no way we could do that. Why? Because if we sin in one place, James 2.10 says, we're guilty of the whole law, the whole thing. So God can't allow that just to have a big pile of good works. And by the way, when we're unbelievers... All of our pile works are really like filthy rags because uh, we always do them with the wrong motive. Even when we want to do a good thing, we do them with the wrong motive. We're not doing it for God, right? We're doing it for ourselves or for some other reason, some selfish reason. So they can't be accepted by God. But why can God accept faith on our part? Why, why can God do that? Because Jesus Christ already did all of these works that would be acceptable before God. He, he fulfilled all the laws perfectly. And so in place of perfect righteousness, which we can't do, God accepts something else. And that is faith. See, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, the one who was perfectly righteous, He credits to our account Christ's righteousness as if we were righteous. But if we mix those up, we will not have genuine saving faith. A misunderstanding of this order will affect the way that you live. And if you think that you are earning God's saving favor by doing things, then I would say to you that you are legalist. God will accept me because I listen to a certain type of music. Or God will accept me because I dress a certain way. Or because I've done all these great things. I've gone to church. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I've done all these things. And so God has to accept me. And Paul says, no, you've got it messed up. If you don't understand that, then you very well could be condemned. Faith precedes works. And the reason I know that further, let me just read for you several verses from Paul talking about circumcision. And with the word circumcision, you can put in the word works if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. 
Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Galatians 6, 12-13, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that you will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, for they desire to have you circumcised so that you may boast in your flesh. Titus 1, 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for a sake of sordid gain. There he's talking about Jews who are uh, Jews and ethnicity only. So what we should learn from Genesis 17 and Romans 4 this evening is that obedience never saved anyone. Salvation comes one way. By grace, through faith. And the beauty of that is we cannot point back to all the great things we did and say, look what I did in my salvation. Because we were dead. We were lost. We needed God to do a unilateral, a one-sided work on us. We were dead. How does a dead person muster up enough energy to do anything right before God? They can't. And so what that does for us, when God does the work, we see that, that, that God was the one who brought us out of, out of our own sin and condemnation. And all we can say is we can't point to anything that we've done. We can point to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I can boast in nothing else except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. I have nothing to boast in. Not because, because I haven't done anything. It was all God. So, the main point of this passage in Genesis 17 is that God will remind us as believers of His promises, but He also expects us to obey Him in faith. The way we live is determined by our view of God. The way that you and I lived is determined by what the way that we see God. In other words, your level of obedience is an expression of your faith in God. And if you are weak in your obedience to God, then that shows you where your heart is. If God is small to you and He's weak, then you're not going to pray. You won't be faithful. You'll be very mechanical in your response and you'll be expecting lots of things from God in return. God, since I have done this certain thing, then you have to do this. Be very mechanical. Your faith will be weak unless you have a right view of God. And that's a continually, a continual changing process. I hope you understand that. That's why we need to be together often. That's why we need to be in the Word often. Recognize God's plan for your faith. God increases your faith like a slow cooker, like, like a crock pot, rather than like a microwave. Isn't it interesting that even when you want to change, God doesn't change you overnight usually, does He? It takes a long time. And the reason I know that is because of Abraham himself. Hey, God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Yes, he believed at that time. That was good. He, made, he took some steps of faith, but then... He still had a lot to learn, didn't he? He prostituted out his wife to the Egyptians. He had a son through Hagar, not believing that God would fully bring about this promise on his own, but that he had to force the situation. And he and Sarai, probably to this point, 13 years after this child was born, probably thought, this is it. This is the son of promise. We've, we've received and seen God's will for our lives. We know it. We're doing it. But God was not finished with Abraham and Sarah yet. God was giving them time and God was going to show them over time that He was powerful and that He still wanted to increase their faith even late in life. And that means that no matter how old you are, God is still working in you. God is still working in you. Abraham wasn't even called until what age? Anybody remember? 75. 
75 years old, Abraham called God. He wasn't done with Abraham. It wasn't like, hey, you're all set. Come on to glory. Still a lot of work to do. A lot of things to iron out. And his greatest act of faith, I believe, would not come till he was well into his 100s when he offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice or was willing to do so. So I would say to you, God is not done with you yet. Pray for God to increase your faith. Ask God where you need to improve spiritually. Ask God what you need to do to get to the next level. To to stop disobeying Him in these ways and then start obeying Him in these other ways. If you really want to, to, uh, to do something dangerous, ask another member of this church where you can grow spiritually. Perhaps it won't be as clear to you because you're self-deceived. We often are because of our sin. Ask God to change you. Ask God to give you more faith, to continue to teach you. Don't ever get to the point in your life where you think that you've arrived spiritually. You haven't, nor have I. God's got a lot of work for us in us to do, doesn't He? He still did in Abraham, great man of faith. And yet, God was faithful. He was reminding him of his promise. And he was going to do some great things through him. And Abraham would die without fully having received the promise. He received Isaac, but not fully having received the, the multitude of descendants. He was already dead. Not receiving the land. It would be not till another 400 years later. He died. But that's okay. Because there was something waiting for him on the other side. And there will be for you. Even if you don't see all of the promises come to fruition in your lifetime, God has something great for you. And will you follow him in obedience? Will you express the faith that you have in him with your obedience? And the key to that is understanding the relationship between faith first and then obedience. And when we do that, We will be more adequate servants of our Master. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us not to be deceived. Help us not to think that we have it all figured out. I pray that You would work in my heart. That You would continue to humble me and shape me and change me. That You do the same for each person here who desires to have a deeper relationship with You. I pray that we would never rest on our laurels of what we have done in the past, but that we would continue to recognize Your work in us and that the the most reasonable service of worship for us is to give ourselves to You in obedience. The expression of our genuine faith, the, the faith that saves, comes in our obedience. And Lord, You know how hard that is for us to do. We get set into a routine of what works for us. And sometimes we don't want to be uh we don't want to have our sins come to the surface. We don't want to see where we need to obey you further. But I pray that you would use circumstances in our lives as well as the teaching of your word and the study of the word in our own homes to be able, to be able to show each of us here where we need to grow. And I pray that the result will be a more unified body and a, a, um, a group of people who are more concerned about Jesus Christ and his, the advancement of His name in our area and in our own lives, we pray in His name. Amen.